I have your full attention. Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby Doo, Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? Well, how many weeks has it been? Uh, it'll probably be like three by the time this comes out. A lot has happened between the time we recorded last and now. I'll just say yeah. that. That's true. It's hard to comment on anything um, topical because our turnaround is very, very slow, even under the best of circumstances. Abysmal, I believe, is the word that we're looking for here. Uh, Yeah, that works. All we're doing is meeting the demand. People aren't listening to podcasts at the moment, and um, we're not giving them any podcasts (laughs) to listen to, so that's just... It's a marketing strategy. I did not think when we recorded... Berlin Court. I almost forgot the name of the movie. Uh, so did Dana. True. That the world would be so radically different, but here we are. You guys are coming out of lockdown, and I'm going back into lockdown because people can't stop visiting their families when they're riddled with fucking coronavirus. So, well, don't worry. I'm sure we'll be going back into lockdown pretty oh, soon yeah, too. Definitely. So. I have uh, some family friends who are in Oklahoma right now. They were traveling from Texas to Oklahoma for medical treatment on one of the reservations and they got stuck in Tulsa and right now Tulsa is the site of a Trump rally and they're staying in a motel that's just full of Trump fucking meth addicts to be honest with you here that is probably one of the last places on the planet I would want to be right now I know and my mom was telling me she's like you guys should probably consider getting out of Tulsa and (laughs) And they were like, we've already checked in. And I was like, well... You can check out. It was I nice mean, that's knowing that's what you. that whole function is for. You can just check out. It's like Hotel California, but Hotel Oklahoma. Hotel Oklahoma. <laughs> oh, God. Any Okies listening to this, I respect you. I respect your great state. I respect the wonderful um, demonstrations currently happening there against police brutality. And for the Black Lives Matter movement more generally, and I'm sorry that you also have to play host to a bunch of cousin fuckers wearing flip-flops right now. And no masks. And no masks. Oh my god. Uh, Disneyland is reopening in July, and uh, I was on Mice Chat, which is a website for Disneyland (laughs) updates. Shut the fuck up. And um, there were all these comments from people being like... If I have to wear a mask, I'm not coming back. And I'm like, good, okay. <laughs> See you later, time I guess. for me on the Haunted Mansion ride. I know, already. The fact that people are like, I'm going to cancel my vacation. I cannot, my kids cannot be expected to wear masks consistently. I'm like, okay, good. 
infect people somewhere else, not where I live. Well, apparently they're infecting people up in the Canadian Rockies. So, I mean... <laughs> yeah, we've had um, Texans driving through and when asked how they got into the country, they say they found a loophole, quote, where they just lie at the border and say they're going to Alaska and that's that's the big trick and apparently it's worked, so that's cool. Prior to Prohibition, uh, the majority of federal resources were spent policing the northern border, not the southern border, because of all of the illicit activities that took place, all of the changing uh, hands of goods and people, and the fact that you can just fucking waltz into Canada, apparently, I think you guys should be a lot more stringent. You guys should be like, let me see your Airbnb reservation for Alaska. Well, Trump has this very interesting fixation on patrolling the northern border, and I don't mean to be, you know, callous here, but quite frankly... No fucking Canadian is trying to get into the States right now. Like, we don't want it. I don't know what he thinks we're trying to do there. I don't know what I he thinks think about he anything. I don't think he thinks at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what does he know about Canada? Canada dry ginger ale? Those Tim goose Hortons. coats? That's it. That yuppies like? Is there anything else to know, really? That's it. That's all yeah, Canada has. That's it. Yeah, that's about it. Moose. <laughs> so what else is going on in the world? Uh, they delayed the Oscars until April. Yeah, because there are no fucking movies. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, A lot... <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I guess the big contenders would be released in the latter half of the year, but also I'm interested to see what happens there considering it's now summertime in the Northern Hemisphere and the number three highest grossing movie in the world is still Doolittle. <laughs> Which Todd and I watched. Yeah. And oh my god. We shouldn't There have. really is an enema at the end of that movie. He puts his hand up a dragon's ass and removes some things. Avant-garde cinema, huh? <laughs> Where on the list is, Troll, is Trolls World Tour? Is that number one? No, number one is still Bad Boys for Life. It hasn't been theatrically released yet. Uh, so it doesn't count. Oh, not even the VOD. Hmm. I've been saying this since the beginning. This is just Universal trying to circumvent US versus Paramount Pictures. They're trying to get back the movie theater monopolization by studios and the, the right for studios to own their own theater chains. I see through this bullshit. I see through it. I know their motives. I know what they're doing. I just think it's a little foolhardy to be planning returns to cinema because they're doing that here and like we're going back into lockdown because yesterday we had 25 cases in our state and it's just like i mean everyone's so crazy to go back to the movies and go back to restaurants and everything and i just i don't know why i'm not feeling i had to go to the optometrist yesterday and there was like five people in the shop at the same time i'm like i need to leave I panic bought some glasses. I was like, these ones, just so I could get out of there. <laughs> well, I'm not going to be able to go to the movies anyway, no matter what they do, because obviously I would wear a mask. And I can't do that because I wear glasses 24-7 and they fog up when you wear a mask, so I wouldn't be able to see the fucking movie. So it's going to be a while for me. Yeah, spritz them with some Rain-X. I've seen the recommendation online. I'm sure some guy at an auto parts store could hook you up. <laughs> no, just get like a full on gas mask with your prescription in the like <laughs> iPod and then you'd be fine. That's what Philip Raven would do. <laughs> okay, I have one more thing. Big important announcement for anybody who uh, has taste. A formative influence in early television has been made publicly available um, via YouTube. And it turns out that the, I think it's the Chicago History Museum in collaboration with like the Henson Families Foundation 
and the Burr Tilstrom uh, Trust have digitized and are releasing the original run of Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, which is... <laughs> Puppets. Puppets! One of the most important shows in the history of children's entertainment. Burr Tilstrom was a genius. So if you ever want some puppet shit, you know, lots of people watched Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. It had a lot of, um, it was kind of like Pee-wee's Playhouse. And so it had a lot of people watched The Big Bang Theory. It doesn't mean it was good. I'm just saying it, it had, it was, had a very, it had an intellectual angle to it. It had a, kind of uh, that angle to it. So it, it counted a lot of, you know, members of the intelligentsia and the arts community amongst its most ardent fans. Marlene Dietrich was a big fan of Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, and she called Orson Welles fat once, so... I mean, so have I. Yeah, I mean, we've all, we're all guilty of that. I'm just saying she knows what's up. She knows the <laughs> truth. She's not, she's not afraid to speak the truth. Anyway, so the, uh, the very, very, very early... I don't even know. I didn't even know these kinescopes survived, to be quite honest. I think it's pretty amazing that any of this footage is still around, because very few series from the 1949 television season are still in existence. So a little bit of TV history. Very exciting. I've been watching it been enjoying it so well i'm sure our listeners are clamoring for more puppet news so thanks for that candace candace's puppet corner <laughs> candace's corner <laughs> well it's all the kind of what a boston crowd called bay state power does maybe they've done it already they'll do it i don't know what it is but i know they'll do it well, let's all drink to bay state power no no let's drink to julia say have you met her yet no. And if she's anything like her sister. Oh, now we drink to johnny and julia and bay state power and love and happiness and Oh, here you are. For the love of Pete, it's the witch and dopey. Welcome to What's in the Basket. My name is Tiff, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Amelia. Hello. And Candace. Hello. Who loves puppets? Yeah, I do. Uh, today, though, we are not talking about puppets, unfortunately. Well, there are puppets in the movie. Son of a bitch. <laughs> did you forget about the puppets? I totally fucking did. I was thinking, like... I was running through in my brain, and I was like, well, there's the giraffe, but there's no, like, puppets. But there's fucking puppets. There's Punch and Judy. There are fucking puppets, so... Uh, can't escape. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, anyway. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about Holiday, a film that was the third of four collaborations between two of the biggest movie stars who ever lived, Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. And it is our great fortune as a society and as a species that Grant and Hepburn made four pictures together, even if one of them was Sylvia Scarlet. Rude, but okay. So two of their movies, the Howard Hawks-directed screwball comedy Bringing Up Baby and the urbane rom-com The Philadelphia Story, remain among old Hollywood's best-remembered and most-beloved films, of course, because this podcast is what it is. We are not discussing either of their major classics or their utterly insane cross-dressing caper though I do hope to address all three at some point in the future. Uh, instead, today's episode is about a movie that, though far from obscure, is at least compared to Bringing Up Baby and The Philadelphia Story a little bit underrated. I would say so, yeah. yeah. I'd say it's better, but, I mean, fight me. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. So, like The Philadelphia Story, Holiday is an adaptation of a Philip Berry play directed by George Cukor and starring Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. However, it has not achieved the impressive legacy of the later film, nor the widespread reconsideration that brought new life to bringing up Baby, or the status as a fascinating historical curiosity that keeps Sylvia Scarlet in the consciousness. Rather, Holiday is almost quiet and introspective compared to the rest of the Grant and Hepburn filmography, recognized for its greatness by those who know, but despite receiving a Criterion release earlier this year, still a bit of an underdog. 
and it's also a movie I love very much. I want to start with a brief look at the life of the playwright Philip Berry, author of the play upon which Holiday was based. Berry's biographer Joseph Patrick Ropolo describes him as, quote, one of America's leading playwrights, second only to Eugene O'Neill in consistency and quality of production. It is typical of Philip Berry's fate that almost everyone knows the Philadelphia story, but very few can name the author. Indeed, Berry was a popular playwright in the 1920s and 1930s, whose works were frequently adapted to the screen, with major stars like Anne Harding, Leslie Howard, Ruth Chatterton, and, of course, Catherine Hepburn. Despite his success, however, his name fell into obscurity following his death in 1949. Ropolo places the blame for this fall squarely on Barry himself, writing, It was fashionable in the 1920s for young playwrights to be mysteriously reticent. Barry carried the fashion to an extreme. With him, reticence became a way of life. He shunned publicity, and he gave even professional biographers only the minimum of personal data. It's us, as podcasters. Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> say, fuck. I mean, he could also have just, like, not been into that. Like, yeah. just didn't want to talk about himself. It's like, we've all been in that situation where someone asks you a personal question. It's like, I'd rather die than answer this, so um, peace out. So what do we know about Philip Berry? He was born in Rochester, New York in 1896 to John Corbett Berry and Mary Agnes Quinn. John Berry was an Irish immigrant who ran a marble tile company and died unexpectedly of appendicitis when Philip was a year old, leaving behind Mary and her four children, of whom the infant Philip was the youngest. Philip began writing pretty much as soon as he was able to. He published his first story in the Rochester Post Express Children's Supplement at the age of nine. The story was entitled Tab the Cat, and it followed a cat named Tab as he befriended some city mice and a country bulldog. So are you, is this like, is Tab the Cat kind of a precursor to Country Mouse City Mouse? It might have just been a ripoff, I feel like. Yeah. I think I that's think. earlier. So why were they publishing this nine-year-old's ripoff of Because it was the children's section of the newspaper. What else were they going to write about? <laughs> kids dying of diphtheria? Well, I mean, that would have been more real, more down with the kids. The Town Mouse and the Country Mouse is an Aesop fable. Oh, Jesus. Oh, well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> so this well, stupid Well, it would have been in the public domain then, so he was well within his rights to fucking rip it off. <laughs> Absolutely. When Philip was 14, with the tile business struggling, his mother Mary attempted to sell some of the property she had inherited from her late husband, only to discover that virtually everything, the entire estate belonged to the teenage Philip. This was because John Barry had drawn up a will in 1895, a year before Philip was born, and by the time of his death two years later had not yet amended it to include his fourth child. So New York state law at the time dictated that a child born after a will was made would inherit, quote, as if there hadn't been any will. Philip was therefore entitled to one quarter of two thirds of the estate, held at interest until he turned 21, whereas Mary's share and the shares of her three older children remained normally operative. So by 1910, Philip's share therefore amounted to more than the entire estate was worth. What the fuck? I have to object to this because I feel like that law should be applied like if you're an only child or something. This is insane. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. Whoever drafted that on the, I don't know, whoever, wherever it got argued up to in the New York Supreme Court was probably the youngest child who hated <laughs> his older siblings because that's... 
Oddly, oddly specific. Philip ultimately signed his inheritance over to his mother when he turned 21, but during his teenage years, he didn't shy away from lording his newfound wealth and power over his siblings, particularly his two older brothers. He used his position as boss of the family fortune to gain their respect or perhaps fear. So it's succession. Not everything is succession. <laughs> this is, this is succession. I don't, I don't know if I'd do that with my sibling because, you know, we actually get along quite well, but like, I can see other families where the siblings aren't so buddy-buddy, where that would happen. It's hard to take sides here because I, obviously I don't know these people, but everything Philip Barry has done thus far, including that town mouse, country mouse bullshit, a little bit of, little, little bit of a dick flavoring about him. <laughs> bit of a dickish aura. I think he might be at fault. So Philip went to Yale in 1913 and attempted to enlist when the United States entered the First World War in 1917, but was rejected due to his poor eyesight. Instead, he took a job with the State Department, which sent him to the American Embassy in London to do wartime code work. He described this work as, quote, very dull indeed, claiming he'd been led to believe it would be more exciting than it was. So when the war ended, he returned to Yale, where his play Autonomy was produced by the Yale Dramatic Club in 1919. And after graduation, he enrolled in the Harvard Workshop Playwriting course. During this period, he worked in advertising to support himself, and unsurprisingly, he hated it and whined about it. In 1922, his play The Jilts won the Harvard Workshop's award for Best Full-Length Drama. The prize was $500 and a Broadway production of the show, which is a pretty fucking good prize. That's a big fucking prize. <laughs> yeah. I guess Broadway wasn't it wasn't what it is today, but it's like... I mean, I'll take it. Meanwhile, over at Yale in the Yale workshop, a certain group of guys... Oh my god. The Yale puppeteers are over there, and they're just like, <laughs> here's some sawdust and uh, all leftover costumes from our latest Wagner. Here you go. And we all Philip Barry, they're just, everybody's fading him with Broadway openings and gift cards to Chili's. I hope he embraced this moment, because the highs were not going to last forever. So the uh, the show opened in February 1923. He also got married around this time, but knowing what we know about Barry... That may have paled in comparison to finally launching his Broadway career. He had a series of plays staged on Broadway throughout the 1920s, starting at this point with varying degrees of success. Among them was The Youngest, a semi-autobiographical recounting of the incident with his father's will. <laughs> <laughs> That being your shitty little brother. He then spent 1927 living on the French Riviera with his wife and young sons, where they hobnobbed with the Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald set before returning to New York in 1928. And it was at this point that he turned his attentions to the play that concerns us today. So for his seventh play since The Jilts, Barry set out to tackle the materialism of 1920s America. He intended to cast Hope Williams, the breakout star of his 1927 hit Paris Bound, in a role partly based on the real-life heiress Gertrude Sanford. Sanford was the daughter of a Republican congressman turned carpet magnate and was known for her rejection of the socialite lifestyle typical to women of her status. She spent most of her time traveling the world on big game hunting expeditions. Not great. But she was generally the only woman present, and his protagonist in Holiday, Linda Seaton, was not a big game hunter, but had a similar sense of headstrong nonconformity, if not outright eccentricity. Barry also drew inspiration from Gertrude's siblings. Fictionalized versions of Stephen and Sarah Jane Sanford would also appear in the play as Ned and Julia Seaton, respectively. Stephen Laddie Sanford was a professional polo player who married the actress Mary Duncan in 1933, while Sarah Jane's husband, and this is crazy, was uh, named Mario Panza, 
and he was an Italian diplomat and advisor to Benito Mussolini, who drowned okay. in 1947. He just fucking drowned and died what? in 1947. What is it with aristocratic families, and I mean this like transatlantically, and connections to fascism? Because wasn't one of like the Mitford yeah. sisters married to a Nazi? Um, I'd, I'd say it's something to do with fascists and their love for wealth and power. But, Rich um... people are just constantly like slipping sh- sh- into insanely regressive like authoritarian politics like it's just like no big deal like sure i want the arm of the state to smack down the worker pass me my gun so i can go blow the head off a gazelle that's normal that's a normal thing for someone to do so gertrude meanwhile spent the second world war working for the oss and became the first American woman in uniform to be taken prisoner by the Nazis when she accidentally crossed into a German village not realizing that it had been recaptured from U.S. forces. (laughs) So the Americans had taken the village. Gertrude thinks they've still got it, drives right in, and they, they capture her and keep her for like six months. I'm envisioning she's on skis like Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan in The Mortal Storm. (laughs) <laughs> and then Robert Young is chasing after them, and then that's her. She's just snowshoeing into this village. It would suck to get arrested on snowshoes. Just clomping into jail <laughs> <Yeah>. in snowshoes. <laughs> they take them from you. You're not going to get those back. So while the story of the Sanford siblings involves movie stars and espionage and fascists dying under circumstances that I can only describe as weird, the plot of Holiday is extremely simple. Heiress Julia Seaton meets lawyer Johnny Case on vacation at Lake Placid, and they quickly get engaged. Julia brings Johnny home to meet her family, and he discovers that she's one of those Setons, the fabulously wealthy ones. Johnny, on the other hand, has been working since childhood and is saving up to take an extended holiday, essentially a midlife retirement that he can enjoy while he's still young. How's your garden grow, Case? Is life wonderful where you are? Can be. But it hasn't been? Well, I don't call what I mean doing living. And what do you recommend for yourself, Doctor? A holiday. Follow. As long as I need. You mean just to play? No. No, I've been working since I was 10. I want to find out why I'm working. The answer can't be just to uh, pay bills and to pile up more money. Even if you do, the government's going to take most of it. Yes, but what is the answer? Well, I don't know. That's what I intend to find out. You know, the world's changing out there. There's a lot of new, exciting ideas running around. Some of them might be right and some might be cockeyed, but they're affecting all our lives. They want to know how I stand, where I fit into the picture, what it's all going to mean to me. I can't find that out sitting behind some desk in an office. So as soon as I get enough money together, I'm going to knock off for a while. Quit? Quit. I want to say part of my life for myself. There's a catch to it, though. It's got to be part of the young part. You know, uh, retire young, work old. Come back and work when I know what I'm working for. Does that make sense to you? That makes a lot of sense. He hits it off with Julia's siblings, Ned and Linda, but trouble arises when their father questions Johnny's lack of old money and social connections. So while Linda and Johnny grow closer... Julia and Mr. Seaton move ahead on planning the rest of Johnny's natural life. Johnny grows nervous, realizing that Julia's vision of their life together has little in common with his. Meanwhile, Ned and the married academics Nick and Susan Potter are on hand to trade sarcastic asides as Johnny must choose between respectable conventionality with Julia and the dream of freedom from drudgery he's been pursuing his entire life. So with such a dialogue-heavy and character-driven plot, Holiday lives or dies on casting. And the cast of the original Broadway run was headlined by Barry's muse Hope Williams, and under her leadership, the play was well-received by critics and audiences alike. Her understudy was a 21-year-old actress named Catherine Hepburn, who had just been fired from another show 
for fumbling her lines beyond comprehension on opening night. I mean, like, if it's opening night and it's like, she's very young, she probably just fucking crabs memed it. She was like, anxious. Yeah. It's all in the recovery, though. Like, that famous story about Jimmy Stewart being spotted because he was playing, I think he was playing a butler in a play and he went out on stage and he had like one line and it was like i'm not gonna do a jimmy stewart voice but it was like miss there's someone at the you know and it is someone at the door and he did like his fucked up weird jimmy stewart voice and the audience just like rioted because it was so bizarre and amusing and then like he was all anyone talk about and he had like one line in the play so had she done that and then maybe done like a little bit of a Fortnite dance afterwards then everything would have been fine. But. Well, fortunately for the inexperienced Hepburn, the producer Arthur Hopkins had been in the audience of that ill-fated performance and, against all odds, saw enough in Hepburn to offer her a role in his upcoming play. When that show closed after eight days, he brought her in as Williams's understudy on holiday, at which point Hepburn, being Hepburn, nearly threw it all away. After two weeks waiting in the wings as understudy to Hope Williams, Catherine Hepburn quit Holiday to marry Ludlow Ogden Smith. Briefly convinced she wanted to give up on acting and become an affluent housewife, she and Smith spent another two weeks looking at properties in Pennsylvania until Hepburn had yet another change of heart and the newlyweds returned to Smith's apartment in New York City. When Hepburn appeared in Arthur Hopkins's office to ask for the job she'd given up a month prior, Hopkins replied simply, I've been expecting you. Look, I mean, Kate Hep, she wanted to experience things and then quickly decided she did not want to experience things. You know, <laughs> I think she's well within her rights to do that. Um, is it extremely annoying of her to do that to everyone else involved? Absolutely. Do I think she made a mistake by marrying that man? Yes, I do. But she makes up for it later. <laughs> also, talent will out, you know. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Look at how many people... Where's Hope Williams fucking for Academy Awards? <laughs> <laughs> Here's that champagne you ordered, Mr. Simpson. Oh, thanks. Here. Wow! An award statue! Oh, it's a Grammy! Back at it again as understudy to Hope Williams, Hepburn then spent another six months sitting out every performance and praying that Williams would get sick, which ultimately only happened once. Hepburn described her single stage performance in Holiday as a baptism by fire and developed a deep lifelong admiration for Williams, intentionally incorporating Hope's mannerisms into her own persona. The two women stayed in touch for the remainder of Williams's life, and according to Hepburn, quote, Without Hope Williams, Catherine Hepburn would not have gotten very far. So are we, like, did she, like, single white female Hope Williams? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> I want a single white female Barry. Take away his tile fortune. <laughs> what What would we spend it on? Puppets? My first thought was a pinball machine. And then <laughs> some puppets. And then I would buy a Ford Raptor. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> to carry around my puppets. <laughs> In the back seat, you know, and I would I would buckle them all in. Maybe maybe I'd get them little 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 booster seats, you know. This is getting into like TLC, my crazy obsession territory. Well, if you didn't constantly you start bait like me. naming them and talking to them and like, well, of course they'd have names. They are their own people. That's like saying, oh, of course your horse has a name. A horse is not a person. Horse is a horse. Of course. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, Holiday ran for 229 performances from November 1928 to June 1929. Pathé bought the film rights for $35,000, and the first screen adaptation of the play directed by Edward H. Griffith and starring Anne Harding as Linda, with Mary Astor as Julia and Robert Ames as Johnny, was released in July 1930. 
and it suffers from being very much a filmed play. Uh, it's stagey, it's static, it doesn't really have the personality like in front of or behind the camera to really make it. It also suffers shine. because it has like Robert Ames in it. And I was going to say, it's also fundamentally flawed because who in their right mind would ever pick Anne Harding over Mary Astor? I can't even come up with anything even vaguely plausible as to why one would pick Anne Harding over Mary Astor. If it has to be a blonde, I guess. If you got one of those things where if she's not a blonde, you, you can't stand at full attention. She, she could just wear a wig, you know. You said it, not me. You're the one who was disgusting. I Like, what do you want me to say? I'm not. I'm sorry that Anne Harding had a career she shouldn't have had. I don't mind Anne Harding. I just... <laughs> I, I, I find it very difficult to believe. I don't find it feasible. As it were. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, um, leave her to heaven. You only believe that Cornell Wilde is going to end up with Gene Crane because Gene Tierney is a fucking psychopath. Yeah. You know, yeah. were she not, it wouldn't be a competition. That's my position with, with, you know, with Anne Harding. I just, I don't believe it. I don't, I don't find it compelling. I don't find it true. Well, now we've sorted that out. Well, <laughs> the original version of Holiday from 1930 still may be worth a watch for fans of the later version interested in seeing Edward Everett Horton's first stab at the role of Nick Potter. And also want to see him paired up with fucking crazy fascist Hedda Hopper. Yeah, I was going to say, fortunately noted friend of the pod Hedda Hopper was not asked <laughs> back to play Susan in the later version. <laughs> Thank God. Small favors. I can't wait to take you guys by, you know, there's actually an Edward Everett Horton lane in Los Angeles. We'll get there in, what, 2025 I... when the borders reopen. Yeah. Exactly. So we're going to have to hold out on taking a tourist photo outside some condominiums on Edward Everett Horton Lane in Encino. One day. One day. Maybe by then we'll have a Patreon and we can put them up there for like, you know, 10 bucks a month. <laughs> so back on Broadway, Katherine Hepburn was still desperately chasing after her big break. She thought perhaps she'd finally found it in 1931 when Philip Berry reached out, hoping to cast her in his latest play, The Animal Kingdom which was to star English theater idol Leslie Howard, who also signed on to produce. Listeners may remember Howard as Ashley Wilkes in Gone with the Wind or for having the single largest forehead known to mankind. Also dying horrifically in a plane crash. Well, that too. Leave him alone. I'm a great supporter of Leslie Howard, not so much as a person, but as an actor, he's quite good. And I mean... Who would have seen him in Gone with the Wind now that it's gone from HBO? Thank God, because it's not a good movie anyway. You were dropping hot takes all over this this pod. I just don't give a shit. I just don't care anymore. No one's listening. I can say whatever I want. So Hepburn had only performed in Holiday once in six months, but Barry must have seen something in her because he insisted she was ideal for the role of Howard's mistress. Co-producer Gilbert Miller tried to talk him down from this conviction, but he wouldn't budge. Hepburn was given the part, rehearsals began, and everything immediately went to hell, with her and Leslie Howard butting heads from the start. Man, that would hurt. <laughs> <laughs> According to Hepburn, their working relationship was doomed from the moment she showed up to rehearse wearing heels that made her taller than him, though to engage in a little customary height chat, he allegedly stood 5'9 to her 5'6. So I'll leave it up to you to decide where you fall on that story. Was she wearing platforms? <laughs> it what? sounds like she was wearing her Baby Spice platforms, yeah. Either way, she recalled that from the beginning, quote, I felt that there was something distasteful about me to Mr. Howard. Try as hard as I could to be subservient, sweet, feminine, anything which would tame down my too vivid personality. I struggled. Nothing worked. 
I remember one hideous moment where I said, what would you like me to do here, Mr. Howard? And he answered, I really don't give a damn what you do, my dear. So Howard was both star and producer, and Hepburn didn't stand a chance in this conflict. She was fired via telegram, and when she called Barry looking for an explanation, he replied, quote, well, to be brutally frank, you weren't very good. You know, it's 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 like a... I feel like they both would have been difficult to work with. I mean, I definitely do get a Leslie Howard was an asshole yeah. vibe. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Kate probably but... didn't make it easy. No. Absolutely. I... Knowing Kate, no. But she's right. Because she's, she's a superior right. talent, and she yeah. also she's a woman, and that's that's how the world works. So she's right. So RKO ultimately bought the film rights to the Animal Kingdom, and the 1932 screen version saw Leslie Howard reprise his stage role opposite who else but Anne Harding in the part Hepburn had lost. Man, he just really had a thing for Anne Harding, huh? Hard on for Harding. Well, RKO at that point, Anne Harding is like, she's their, their shining star. Did they have anyone else? They had Irene Dunn, I believe. Oh, well, that's hardly better, is it? I know. It's kind of, it's really interesting to see that um, kind of wave. It's like thinking about that at one point, you know, Goldwyn's biggest star was like Eddie Cantor, and then he wasn't, you know, I I don't know. It's really (laughs) interesting to see the ebbing and flowing. Uh, The trends seem to affect the smaller studios in terms of the stable of stars on offer way more so than at the major studios, because obviously they're the ones making the trends. The thing about Katherine Hepburn, however, is that she apparently couldn't take a step without falling ass backwards into a great opportunity. (laughs) Fuck, I wish that was me. (laughs) (laughs) So the humiliation of the animal kingdom soon became a mere footnote in the story of her ascendance to Hollywood stardom. In 1932, she was cast in The Warrior's Husband, playing an Amazon in a role originated by none other than Hope Williams. Meanwhile, RKO production head David O. Selznick and director George Cukor were on the lookout for an unknown ingenue to play John Barrymore's daughter in their upcoming adaptation of A Bill of Divorcement. So Hepburn's work in The Warrior's Husband caught their attention, and Selznick ordered a screen test. By all accounts, the test was a disappointment. Hepburn insisted on doing a scene from Holiday instead of the pages that were provided, which is a very Clifton Webby move, uh, reference our Laura episode for that. And she had a jarring manner of speaking, according to Patrick McGilligan's Cukor biography a double life she quote looked like a gargoyle (laughs) (laughs) like arthur hopkins and philip barry before him though cuker saw something in her beyond her harsh exterior in particular he noted a bit of physical acting she did with a highball glass a moment he described as quote a sad lyric moment which convinced him that she was right for the part selznick on the other hand was less than persuaded by her glass handling skills Walking back and forth along the beach, it took Cukor and writer Adela Rogers St. John's a full night of nagging to secure his approval. Well, I don't think so. Was Selznick impressed by anything? Selznick was impressed by one woman in his whole life, and that woman was a little lisper named Jennifer Jones. <laughs> and if that's your standard by which all women are judged, obviously somebody like Kate, because Kate doesn't, you know... I mean, I I love Jennifer Jones. I love the list. But when that's your ideal womanhood, you know, the Olivia de Havilland kind of brand of movie star, Kate is a a little too angular, I think. Mm, In every sense. In every sense. You know, Vivian Lee's angularity was all mental, not so much (laughs) in terms of performance. No, I I mean, I think, I think... I don't mean that as a, 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 a jab at all. I think that everything that's really interesting to me about Vivian Lee is all mental. It's all what's inside. It's all what's going up out there. 
going up all up in there but kate is just such a brash individual she is so much all the time that there is this immediate you know you get what you see with her what's what's deep about kate versus what's deep about something somebody like vivian lee is just they're two different total kate's like an android or a illusion <laughs> or something obviously she's like a martian she's not like any other human being that's ever trod the boards you know sometimes we mock these moguls for not seeing gold before them but, you know, I can imagine if you haven't even had your first cigarette of the day and Catherine Hepburn comes into your office and she refuses to read her lines and instead insists on doing some sort of monologue from Holiday and you're like, you know what, this is, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> I'm going to go eat some Cobb salad in my bathroom. <laughs> so I imagine Selznick did next. But Cuker knew because Cuker's a genius, so. So a bill of divorcement marked not only the beginning of Catherine Hepburn's film career, but also that of a lifelong friendship and collaboration between her and Cuker. Though it got off to a rocky start, at their first meeting in Hollywood, he told her that he thought her outfit, quote, stank. This kind of behavior would prove to be a trend with them. On the set of their second movie together, 1933's Little Woman, they bickered constantly, once filming a scene where Hepburn had to bound up a flight of stairs with ice cream while wearing a costume for which there was no double. Cuker threatened to kill her if she got ice cream on the dress, and when she inevitably did so, slapped her across the face and called her an amateur. Do you reckon this happened to Timothy Chalamet in the latest Little Women? <laughs> I certainly hope it did. <laughs> yeah, Greta Gerwig just yeah, just fucking <laughs> hulking out. She was wearing a pair of steel-toed boots and she shoved them right up his ass. I'm impressed that George Cukor could slap her when he's so much like smaller in my mind than Catherine Hepburn is. Also, the fact that he did it and lived. Well, somehow this had little to no detrimental effect on either the production or their friendship. Uh, supposedly, within hours of the incident, they were thick as thieves again, laughing at a pregnant Joan Bennett as she attempted to squeeze into her hoop skirt. Because <laughs> they're both bitches. That's what unites them. I have a theory. That's why she and Ginger didn't like each other. I think they could, like, smell the bitch on each other. <laughs> She and Ginger Rogers, because they hated each other. She and Ginger hated each other. They were like major cat fight. And I think that's exactly what it was. I think they both realized that there's only room for one sheriff. I feel like also um, Kate might have not approved Ginger's politics. That too. And also apparently she like would constantly like make fun of Ginger for being like uneducated and not well read because Kate was a snob, but Elitist. also yeah, I mean... Ginger had terrible politics. So what are you going to do? Oh, do you know who uh, picked Kate up at the train station as a favor to Cuker when she came out to Hollywood? Little, little man with a plan. Little, little bronze, little surfboard boy named Joel <laughs> McRae. Joel picked oh, Kate up. Oh, for fuck's sake. Because he had just made uh, Girls About Town with Cuker, I believe. A couple films back, but so he did as a favor, favor to Cuker. Allegedly. I know that's what I've read. I wasn't there. You wish you were, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'd be a fly in that cab. Probably smelled terrible. He probably smelled like horse shit. And she probably smelled like one of those really popular um, perfumes from around that time. All of which had like smelled like birch tar and tobacco. And I, I can't imagine a conversation between them. Because what happens when two physically superior specimens <laughs> that is not read each other. No. <laughs> a pretty this is something you and I don't understand. Okay, pretty people have a bond between them that the rest of us This is just absolutely just cannot fathom. <laughs> it's true. Hot people, hotties jocks no but like if she made fun of 
Ginger for not being well read. What's she going to do with Joel? Yeah, but you also have to remember that Joel came from money. So Joel's illiteracy, fundamentally is what it was, uh, <laughs> had like a practical edge to it. Joel was like rich boy who likes horses. Kate's, you know, that's that's her. The man's dumb as a box of rocks, but he's he's got that cachet about him. And Ginger doesn't have any because Ginger's just a uh, born in a trunk hoofer. And that's of no interest to Kate. Rich people. <laughs> classism yeah that's sad that's sad <laughs> anyway whatever joel picked her up at the train station and then he taught her how to surf and that's cool is that where the inspiration of a point break came from <laughs> i would kill for that movie point break starring joel mccray and Catherine hepburn what the fuck so little women was hugely successful and had come on the heels of hepburn's first academy award nomination for morning glory she then made three mostly forgettable movies without cuker spitfire the little minister and break of hearts before striking gold with the 1935 hit Alice Adams, for which she received a second Oscar nomination and the freedom to choose her next project. She and Cuker decided to hitch their shared wagon to The Early Life and Adventures of Sylvia Scarlet, a 1918 novel by the British author Compton Mackenzie. Now, Sylvia Scarlet is hard to categorize. It's essentially a cross-dressing romantic comedy, though it varies wildly in tone throughout and is never actually very funny or romantic. It became a passion project for Hepburn and Cuker, and according to producer Pan Berman, I had nothing to do with it. I despised everything about it. It was a private promotional deal of Hepburn and Cuker. They conned me into it and had a script written. I said to them, Jesus, this is awful, terrible. I don't understand a thing that's going on. I tried to stop them, but they wouldn't be stopped. They were hellbent, claiming this was the greatest thing they had ever found. Well, that movie's got a lot of strengths. It's got Brian Ahern with a really cool mustache. Okay. He never looked better than he did in that movie. Um, uh, okay. <laughs> and that might be it, but that's worth something. <laughs> that cool mustache and that he's got cool hair. It's a good look. Compton McKenzie was one of those people who like perceived everything that had ever happened to him as being like a major like psychological trauma. Like I remember reading once where he was talking about the agony of being like a child and seeing his nursemaid buttering a piece of toast for him. And then, like, when there were, like, divots in the bread, you know, like, holes in the bread when it rises, she, if, if any butter got caught inside of it, she would, like, dig it back out with a knife because you couldn't have anything. He was just deeply scarred by his Victorian childhood. And I think that's really funny because, like, people have war in their countries. <laughs> Come to Mackenzie. Anyway, whatever. I just caught Mackenzie's funny. Spitfire. You know who she tried to get to be in Spitfire? Joel. Yeah. And Joel was like, this script blows ass. And she was like, you're stupid. You just don't get it. <laughs> and you're wrong. And then like when it got horrible reviews, he would like clip them out of the newspaper and send them to her. <laughs> Cary Grant, who had been in Hollywood since 1932, but hadn't yet solidified his screen identity, was cast in the role of the Cockney rogue Jimmy Monkley. This part is often regarded as the first true emergence of the soon-to-be iconic Cary Grant star persona. And when all was said and done, it was Grant who came out of Sylvia Scarlet mostly unscathed. Of his performance, Hepburn commented, quote, Before we did Sylvia Scarlet, George told me he was terribly impressed by Cary Grant. He told me that I was going to like Cary. That was George's way, understatement. That was some understatement. Cary was so wonderful in our film that it makes Sylvia Scarlet still worth seeing today. But to see Cary, I'm sorry to say you have to get me too. That's not modesty on my part, it's truth. 
For all their optimism going in, it quickly became apparent to both Hepburn and Cuker that they were in way over their heads. The mood on set was fun, but even during production, Hepburn was growing concerned. She wrote in her diary, quote, This picture makes no sense at all, and I wonder whether George Cuker is aware of that fact, because I certainly don't know what the hell I'm doing. So after a disastrous test screening, Hepburn and Cuker showed up at Berman's house in a panic and begged him not to release the film. They even offered to do a free movie to make up for it, to which an already defeated Berman replied, please don't bother. The film lost $330,000. To some extent, it may simply have been ahead of its time, and it remains interesting today for its subject matter. But on the other hand, there's a lot about Sylvia Scarlet that's really very bad. Years later, Hepburn and Cuker would describe it jokingly as our love child and our flopperoo. So the two remained best pals, but the catastrophe of Sylvia Scarlet made Hepburn and Cuker a little gun-shy when it came to their professional relationship. Between 1935 and 1938, they made no films together. Meanwhile, Hepburn and Grant were reunited for the screwball comedy Bringing Up Baby. According to Hepburn, we were very good together because it looked as though we were having a great deal of fun together, which we were. I can't give you anything but love, baby. That's the only thing I can do, baby. Dream a while, scream a while. Unfortunately, Bringing Up Baby was another flopperoo at the box office and ushered in Hepburn's notorious box office poison phase. RKO then assigned her to an adaptation of the children's novel Mother Carries Chickens, and according to her own recollection, which has been questioned but it makes for a good story, she was so horrified by the assignment she bought up the remainder of her contract for $200,000 and never worked at RKO again. It's just like when Zane bought his way out of One Direction. (laughs) That's what she did. He wanted to get away from Simon Cowell. She wanted to get away from Mother Carrie's chickens. Whatever the hell that is. It's a miracle that bringing a baby even got made. Like, when you really think about it. Yeah. That movie should should not have should not have been produced since you're really teetering on the edge of her totally falling into that like abyss in terms of box office which i know box office poison thing has been overstated massively considering it was like one guy's opinion you know one theater manager in like fucking rochester or whatever but uh every time i see it i'm just i'm just like it's 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 really beautiful you know it's a great movie and i'm glad that People were making very poor business decisions behind the scenes at RKO at that moment. They ended up making Mother Carrie's Chickens with Anne Shirley, which is another weird thing. The fact that an actress who was in Anne of Green Gables just took the name Anne Shirley and worked under that for, like, the rest of her career. It was was weird. I've seen that happen a couple times. That happened with Gig Young, too. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say Gig the, Young. Yeah, in the yeah. Stanwyck movie where they're living in that big house. Yeah. yeah it's Gig fucked Young's up the that they were name. just like allowed to do that. It's fucked up that obviously being a movie star in the 1930s is better than, I don't know, eating rocks and digging ditches and shit like the rest of the country. But the concept that nothing about you belongs to you, your name, you know, your image, your clothes, your house... Your marriage, really. The studio knows everything about you. Uh, it's, it's really unsettling when you think about it. And it's surprising that more people didn't really like collapse under the pressures of being a product. And more so that so many people were able to thrive artistically within those confines. But I understand why you you need, even during this, the, the golden age of the movie star, you do need the anti-movie star movie star, somebody like a Hepburn, to continue to deliver these shocks to the system say, I'm not, I am not one to be truffled with, 
But of course, because she has the capital to do so, you know, there's not, it's not like she's risking, it's not like she's tearing food out of her children's mouths because she doesn't have any children. Although she might've had like a chinchilla or something. Do you think Catherine Hepburn ever owned a puppet? I'm not going to answer that. I feel like ventriloquism is something she would have done like at a party once. I don't think she would have owned a puppet though. Well, maybe she didn't own a puppet, but maybe like Robert Montgomery owned a puppet and he left it at her house. I could see that happening. But that's not like her owning it. Well, if she had to babysit it. That's still not owning it. Like when you babysit a baby, you don't own that baby. Well, as you pointed out earlier, puppets aren't human. So when you babysit a puppet, have you never seen a horror movie? It doesn't matter whether or not you own the object. If you invite it into your home. I just feel like Kate really wasn't one for like sentimental possessions. No, I can totally believe that. But maybe she had a puppet that she hated so much and that's why she (laughs) inspired her creatively. Like if she needed to do a scene that like summoned up like a deep like well of rage, she could like look at a puppet. Surely she just look at like a picture of... I don't know. Ginger Rogers? Really? Ginger Rogers. I was going to say Ginger Rogers, but like, I feel like it would be a man that she'd hate, like, with that kind of burning for us. Well, uh, I have another suggestion. Leslie Howard. Mrs. Spencer Tracy, perhaps? (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Can we talk for a second about all these people who are like, Spence and Kate weren't really together and it was all just like some crazy mutual bearding situation, which like, I would willingly tolerate and entertain in any other context. But her devotion to him doesn't make any sense at all if they're not romantically involved. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. Because if they were just bros, you'd be like, okay, that's enough. Thanks. Yeah, that kind of like insane, almost unsettling codependency that that that's not bros <laughs> you're not that's, bros. Yeah, that's more than bros that's straight girl antics that's yeah like i love it's like there was that ontd comment that was like i love my boyfriend so much he's the most amazing guy in the whole world and he treats me so well but every time i wake up in the morning i find him urinating into my handbag and he just won't stop and like <laughs> that's what like that's the vibe that's the vibe i get from kate and spence made great art but at what cost honestly So Kate leaves RKO over at Columbia, studio head Harry Cohn set his sights on remaking Holiday. Accounts vary as to how the project originated. According to some sources, Cohn hired Cuker to direct and planned to reteam Grant with his Awful Truth co-star Irene Dunn until Cuker argued that Hepburn and Grant would be a superior pairing. Other sources claim that it was Hepburn who encouraged Cohn to remake the picture and requested the involvement of Cuker and Grant. Either way, Hepburn was extremely aware of the risk Cohn was taking, commenting later, quote, I knew that Harry Cohn was legendary as the biggest pig in town, but except for some coarse language, he was never anything but a gentleman with me. More than that, he took a chance on me. He knew how bad my track record had been, and he stuck by me anyway. I feel like it had to be the other way around. I, I just mean in the sense that it had to have been Cuker advocating for Kate, not Kate advocating for Cuker, because Cuker, by this point in time, does not need anyone advocating for his involvement in a project. Yeah, yeah, that version sounded more realistic to me, but you see yeah. them both in, in various uh, biographies and so forth. So Donald Ogden Stewart, the screenwriter and actor who had originated the role of Nick Potter on Broadway, co-wrote the 1938 screenplay with Sidney Buckman, who would go on to receive an Oscar for Here Comes Mr. Jordan, as well as nominations for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and The Talk of the Town. Damn, three great tastes that taste great together. In his memoir, Stewart recalled taking the job mainly to pay for his medical bills after, quote, I got gloriously drunk one night, stepped unscientifically into an open road, and was promptly knocked for an ever-expanding loop by a speeding automobile. When I recovered consciousness, I was in a hospital with less than a 50-50 chance of recovery from a basal skull fracture. So we've got another fucking pre-production car accident (laughs) on this show. 
<gasps> and it's not one of mine for once. <laughs> oh my god, I wonder if the same guy hit him, like the same guy who hit Leo McCary. Like the guy. <laughs> was it, um, no, it was Joan Bennett's husband, was it? Oh, Walter he... Wayne. <laughs> Yeah, Walter Wayne. No, if it were Walter Wayne, you wouldn't, you wouldn't run him over. You just would have shot him in shot the balls. <laughs> like Lupe Velez and Gary Cooper. That's fucking weird. What's up with the car accident? I know, it keeps happening. I mean, our cars at the time were tremendously unsafe, but... We need to, like, make a tally every time we find one. And then we can write a book. And I feel like I don't know that many incidents of people, like, hitting somebody with a car. It's always, like, people getting hit by a car, you know? So it's like, <laughs> who's hanging around the studios constantly running people over? Clark Gable. I was going to say Ramon Navarro, but that <laughs> makes sense. Matthew Broderick. <laughs> Shut the fuck Oh, no. <laughs> the film was edited by Columbia Mainstay's Al Clark and Otto Mayer with cinematography by Franz Planer, whose later credits include Criss Cross, The Big Country, and Breakfast at Tiffany's. Criss Cross, like the rap duo Criss Cross? <laughs> <laughs> Make me uh, Lana. Kill. <laughs> So the costumes were designed by Robert Kallick, Columbia's lead designer, whose most famous works include Claudette Colbert's iconic costume in It Happened One Night and Rosalind Russell's striped suit in His Girl Friday. And I'm going to say costumes go off in this. In yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. big time. So this is a bit of a detour, but Kallick was a really bizarre guy. Uh, he had what Jay Jorgensen and Donald L. Scoggins describe in their book, Creating the Illusion, as, quote, an unusually close relationship with his mother, who seems to have lived with him until her death in 1935. That's what Clifton Webb had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, according to two Jimmy Fiddler and Hedda Hopper columns cited on Wikipedia, he also had a black cat named Mimosa that he'd found as a stray in Central Park and dedicated an entire room of his apartment to Mimosa with cushions strewn on the floor and ivy growing on chicken wire attached to the walls would i do this for my cat perhaps would he appreciate it no because he's a fucking demon from 1931 he was in a relationship with joseph demeray a struggling artist and alcoholic 10 years his junior who spent the 1940s in and out of sanitariums uh Calic himself was an extremely neurotic man who was terrified of cars justifiably as we've learned and <laughs> yeah, would only geez. ride them laying down in the back seat under a blanket wow we've all been there and then he died of cardiac arrest in 1947 at the age of 54 and joseph demeray died of alcoholic liver disease the same day nine hours later Whoa. wow so yeah i found that guy and i just thought he'd done you know some neato costumes and some columbia movies but he had an insane life some people just live really hard huh what is it with gay men during the studio era and having their moms live with them edward horton's mom lived with him too like him and uh was it i guess because they loved them okay (laughs) (laughs) i love my mother but if i had that much money i would buy her her own place to live in that is not with me because i'm an adult and how am i supposed to bone while my 90-year-old mother, who, <laughs> again, probably, you know, remembers the fucking Chester Allen Arthur administration, is in the other room. How am I supposed to pick up Rough Trade on Santa Monica Boulevard if my mom's in the other room? How They're living you just have a big house? Well, I guess. I mean, like, okay, so I, with Edward Everett Horton, you know, he owned basically all of what is now Encino, California. Like, he had a huge ranch out in the valley so i i guess theoretically like mom could live in an outbuilding or something 
But it's just like you're living a life of freedom and artistic fulfillment, professional fulfillment, really, in an environment in which it's okay, it's socially acceptable to be gay. And you have economic liberty and, you know, time and space and all these other things that no other gay man in the world basically at that time has outside of this studio system. And you want your mom there? I don't know. It's just funny. It's weird. (laughs) You know how many guys were living on a farm somewhere that they're with their mom? We're just like, I'm going to poison her. Do you go out with friends? Well, a a boy's best friend is his mother. (laughs) I just think it's weird. I don't know. Whatever. They had different family values back then, and that's why Obama's the devil. Anyway. Anyway, (laughs) it's weird. Continue. (laughs) This man's justifiably weird, okay? It's just one more weird thing about him. Produced under the terrible working titles of Unconventional Linda and Vacation Bound... Holiday's supporting cast underwent several changes before it finally coalesced. Joan Bennett, Carol Lombard, and Rita Hayworth were all considered for the role of Julia Seaton, which ultimately went to Broadway actress Doris Nolan. Family patriarch Edward Seaton was played by Henry Kolker, whose extensive career in theater and film included directing 18 silent films, most of which are now lost. And Edward Everett Horton, who played Nick Potter in the 1930 film, reprised his role. And Jean Dixon replaced Hedda Hopper as his wife, Susan. Holiday was Dixon's final screen appearance, though she lived another 43 years. So get out while the getting's good, I guess. Uh, Binny Barnes and Henry Daniel were cast in smaller parts as the insufferable cousins Laura and Seton Cram. And that, of course, brings us to the Lou of it all. Here he is! So we have finally discussed a Lou Ayers movie. We finally have reason to discuss Lou Ayers. He is actually relevant for once, yes. I mean, he's always relevant. Don't take that away from him. But um, (laughs) relevant on this show in the context of the movie we're talking about. Huker and Lou Ayers first met in 1929 during the production of All Quiet on the Western Front. Cuker, at this point a stage director who had recently moved to Hollywood, was brought in as dialogue director on Lewis Milestone's production of the war epic. When Cuker arrived to work on the project, the lead role of Paul Baumer had not yet been cast. Milestone had his heart set on Douglas Fairbanks Jr., but was struggling to get him loaned out by his home studio. Meanwhile, Ayers, a 22-year-old actor who had just played opposite Greta Garbo in The Kiss, had read the novel and spent months campaigning for the lead role, trying and failing to secure a meeting with Milestone. Even with the support of MGM producer Paul Byrne, later notable for dying in a mysterious suicide while married to Gene Harlow, Ayers couldn't get a foot in the door. It was Cuker who finally scheduled him for a screen test. That's funny because Harlow also famously failed her screen test over at FBO, which later became RKO, and they did the screen test. And the guy doing it was like, you should just quit because you're never going to make it in the movies. And that's why FBO doesn't exist. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately for Ayers, the test didn't impress Cuker at all. He apparently had none of the bewitching skills with a highball glass that would later convince Cuker to bring Catherine Hepburn out to Hollywood. However, fate nevertheless smiled on Lou Ayers. Milestone eventually had to admit that he wasn't going to be able to get his hands on Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and decided to take a look at the screen test that had accumulated in the interim. To Cuker's horror, he zeroed in on Ayers, saying, I think this is our man. Cuker tried to talk him down from the ledge, but they were incredibly down to the wire and shooting was fast approaching. As Ayers recalled, quote, Milestone told me time and time again that if I had made the test earlier, I probably would never have been chosen. It certainly wasn't because of my acting, which Cuker made plain many times. He was just used to polished theater actors, and I was a nobody from nowhere. He was perfectly frank about saying I didn't have the polish. Now, by he didn't have the polish, did he just mean hmm, that hairline's looking a bit questionable? <laughs> 
he didn't have the fake uh transatlantic bullshit dongles thing going on but the thing is i don't think douglas fairbanks jr would have been very good in this part no way uh, no, I, I don't think so no i i think dongles is hard because he gives some really 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 great performances but he is always best as a supporting actor like prisoner of zenda or um oh my god what's the one where he's wearing the bathrobe with greta garbo and johnny mac brown i can remember the bathrobe i don't remember the name of the movie we were gonna do an episode uh, about come live with me and in that movie, that's one of my facts that I wanted to do in the episode, is that Jimmy Stewart is wearing the same bathrobe from you know, MGM costuming that Dongles <sighs> is wearing in that movie. Well, it's not really a bathrobe, but it's a robe. A it's woman exact, of affairs. A woman of affairs. It's the exact same robe that Dongles is wearing in A Woman of Affairs. That's gross. I mean, it's not really a bath. It's just a robe. But they're wearing pajamas, I think, underneath. But um, Dongles wears that, like, the whole movie. Because remember, he turns into, like, a drunkard and he doesn't want to, like, put pants on ever again. Which, you know, <laughs> relatable. Quarantine mood. That's the only fact I have about Come Live With Me. So there you go. It's the same bathroom. But Well, the only thing I wanted to mention about Come Live With Me is the fact that Jimmy Stewart's character is Will Smith. <laughs> <laughs> That's his name. William Smith. Right. Anyway, no, Dongles would have been terrible in All Quiet on the Western Front. I do love Dongles, but he would not have been good in that movie. And I don't think he could rise to the challenge and i think lou did yeah, rise I, to the challenge yeah i just I, he just didn't have the emotional depth to be able to do that in my mind he's not an emotional actor i don't know a woman of affairs he is you can smell Being him drunk is not an emotion smell him through the screen that's called method acting okay so thanks nick nolte would like a word with you look he wasn't the most insightful of people that's why he thought his dad wanted them to be buried together like he's not <laughs> Oh, speaking of Louis Milestone, you know who just loved Louis Milestone? I'm calling him Louis because we're friends. You know who loved, actually his nickname was Millie, but you know who loved Millie Milestone and thought he was just a genius artiste? Was it Joel? Crushed by the studio system? No, it was Dana. Dana thought Louis <laughs> Milestone was a genius. And when the studio, um, when they were making uh, Night of the Demon, Curse of the Demon, you know, it's got the two titles, the, you know, the producer was trying to bully milestone and dana was like this man is an artist and a legend and an icon and you are short i believe basically <laughs> effectively anyway it has nothing to do with anything but it just for our own personal enjoyment as dana fans back to lou Ayers. cuker's protestations fell on deaf ears and Ayers got the role which did make him a star but he spent the rest of the decade mostly playing leads in b pictures he was surprised then when cuker called him in to test for holiday as they'd had something of a contentious relationship on the set of all quiet according to Ayers, quote he was after me all the time on all quiet on the western front telling me to do this do that because he came from new york theater and it bothered me but when i did holiday with him he never said a word and gee we got on so well it's very hard to have a director directing you all the time i was surprised and grateful that he thought of me as the drunken brother gee it was a cute role it was an opportunity to do something with big stellar figures cuker was the same but by now i was a different person i could take him in stride i didn't try to carry the load i wasn't bothered by the long exegesis of the characterization that's that's quite a word there lou jesus you know who didn't know what that word meant Donald's joel probably well, yeah. joel. <laughs> kindly walk do not run to the nearest exit 
So Holiday seems to have been a fairly happy and uneventful production, which makes it perfect for a podcast. Ayers and Hepburn became fast friends to the point where rumors began to circulate that they were dating. Ayers denied this, but described Hepburn as, quote, very brilliant, very bright, and I learned something from her. She's just so sharp and doesn't waste a minute on screen. Speaking in 1965, Grant also pointed to Hepburn's quick-thinking intelligence, saying, quote, Working with her was incredible. You never saw such timing. She had a mind like a computer. Every detail worked out. Yet computers don't have instincts, and her instincts were infallible. She taught me just about everything I know about comedy, how to time my lines, the solemn way to say something comic. And then Hepburn, meanwhile, recalled working with Grant on holiday thusly, quote, This was before Carrie got too rich while he still had to work for a living and had fun doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love Kate. She's the best. Yeah. Anyone who doesn't like Kate is wrong. Is wrong. It's <laughs> fundamentally broken. And yeah. also has no fucking sense of humor because she's right about everything. I mean, mostly, kind of. Mostly. <laughs> try and stop me, someone. Oh, please, someone try and stop me. Holiday was released on June 15th, 1938, nearly a decade after Catherine Hepburn was cast as understudy to Hope Williams and six years since she insisted on using a scene from the play in the screen test that would launch her Hollywood career. Everything came full circle at the rap party, where, as Hepburn recalled, quote, I stole the old holiday test from RKO and ran it for the guests. I laughed when I saw myself. I led the laughter and everyone just fell over. Carrie, George, everyone laughed themselves sick. I was so terrible. It was heartbreaking to see how eager, how hard I was trying to impress. Too eager. I turned to George and said, oh, God, why did you hire me? The movie was unsurprisingly a financial disappointment. Uh, Despite a positive critical reaction, audiences simply weren't interested. Columbia declined to work with Hepburn again, as the film's failure seemed to confirm her status as box office poison. The prevailing wisdom that you tend to see when it comes to holiday crashing at the box office is that beleaguered Depression-era audiences refused to accept Johnny's rejection of guaranteed financial stability. I suppose that theory holds some water, but Holiday is not a film that celebrates money or high society necessarily. Uh, The people in the movie who represent conventional wealth, like Mr. Seton, Julia, and Seton Cram, our jokes. Well, you must know some prominent people who drop a few names. Oh, just casually. No, no, I was to Mrs. Antidonk's cockfight last Tuesday. Whom should I see but Mrs. Marvel? <laughs> well, I thought we'd die laughing. Oh, Johnny, this is love. Uh, Johnny, she says to me, she calls me Johnny. Linda, will you no, be no, quiet? No, yes, well While the tragedy of Ned arguably arises from his being doomed to remain rich and gainfully employed. <laughs> Uh, certainly the concept of leaving it all behind like Johnny and Linda screams of Barry's own privilege being able to put aside money at all was not a reality for working class audiences in 1937 and I agree that the film was likely alienating in that respect but I can't bring myself to totally condemn its naive grasp on what it meant to be a worker in the 1930s I think its core message though handled very clumsily by a man who inherited an estate at 14 and counted the Fitzgeralds among his friends is a good one that the constraints of capitalism rob us of our chance to live and that there's something inhuman about the way we while away our most vital years in the pursuit of money and the vague hope of retirement that we may never be rich enough to afford or healthy enough to enjoy. Does um, Julia know? No, no, I don't want to raise your hopes until I get enough money together. Oh, she has enough of her own for two right now, or ten for that matter. Oh, that's out. No, I don't want her, though. I want to earn it myself. That's foolish. You're all right, though, Case. You haven't been bitten by it yet. You haven't been caught by it. By what? The reverence for riches. Look out for that, Johnny. No, not for me. Uh, In any case, though, Holiday failed. Catherine Netburn's career remained stalled, and her next step would see her taking matters into her own hands. She would soon return to Broadway to star in another Philip Berry play, this time one written specifically with her in mind. But that, of course, is a story for another podcast. Oh, C.K. Dexter Haven! C.K. Dexter Haven! Uh, this is where Cinderella gets off. 
Now you hurry back to the ball before you turn into a pumpkin and six white mice. Goodbye. C.K. Dexter Haven. Oh, C.K. Dexter Haven! What's up? You are. I think it's interesting that audiences weren't interested in it because it is quite a rejection of capitalism and the kind of greed that led to the depression that they were currently in. And I guess it's quite telling that this wasn't successful when only a few years later, the Philadelphia story, which celebrates rich people in like an almost sycophantic Mm -hmm. degree, was so successful. Um, I guess it's interesting how quickly attitudes and minds change. So, I mean, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree that the depression was totally the reason why this flopped. Um, but I think what this movie has that the Philadelphia story doesn't is like this quiet sense of intimacy and like warmth. Like that little room that Catherine Hepburn spends all of her time in the nursery and like that that little world she's created to insulate herself from the strictures of her life and the old money that she hates is it's I just got so much more heart than the Philadelphia story for me I mean I I enjoy the Philadelphia story I think it's a really good movie but like I just think that this one functions a lot more on an intimate and emotional level I also think that all of the performances in this are really wonderful and really underrated I think for me this is one of Cary Grant's best roles definitely Um, yeah and Luez is really great in his role, very deeply relatable in playing someone who's sort of trapped not only by their position in life, but by their own vices and by their, like, own anxieties. He's so sad. He's I've so seen, sad. Like, this is a favorite movie of mine. I've seen it a billion times, and every time you get, like, a lump in your throat when he wants to go with Linda so badly, and he just knows he can't, and it's so fucking sad. Oh, Nettie, Nettie, have I got a job? No. Is your passport in order? Mine is. What do you say? Oh, when? Now, tonight. I don't think I could tonight. Oh, of course you could. If I can, you can. Linda, where are you off to? Will you come? You know I'd like where to. Where are you going? On a trip, on a big ride. Oh, what a ride. Do you mind? Will you come, Ed? Listen, Father. The trip now is out of the question. You won't. Can't. Caught. Maybe. I'll be back for you, Ned. I'll be here. And, and of course, Kate in this movie is so magnetic. Like, if we're talking about the scene at New Year's where she's looking out the window and she's so beautiful and her performance in this movie is so warm and wonderful and it's like, oh, why, what is wrong with people? I mean, we say this every time, but audiences in general are very stupid. And that's what I'm going to say accounts for this, is just that, again, people were really stupid when they didn't like this and they didn't like Night of the Hunter. It's just, yeah, it's just a shame because I think that this one, out of all of their collaborations together, is definitely the one with the most heart. And um, this one has backflips in it and tumbles. I don't know what people want, you know? Puppets, if you're into that, you know? It also, I think, another thing too, is it hits really like plaintive, pathetic, note that very few films about the foibles of the rich and famous at this point in time do you you at this point in time you can laugh at wealthy people dinner at eight it happened one night merrily we live my man godfrey you 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 can you can laugh at their excesses but since this movie asks you to sympathize with people who have so much and yet are so unhappy i think that's a mental stumbling block probably for contemporary audiences 
I think it would be difficult to because it's it's so much easier to to mock. But the movie doesn't ask you to mock rich people. And I think another really interesting thing about about Holiday is that Julia isn't really a bad person. She's just not the right person for Johnny. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, the worst that anyone can say about her is that she's dull. She's dull. She's conventional. She's conservative. She likes money and comfort and luxury. And she wants to be a settled housewife. And she has no ambition beyond that. And that's such a laudable goal at this point in time that I appreciate that the movie doesn't try to make her into some sort of villain. Apart from, you know, Ned feels contempt for her because he feels like, you know, her beauty and her very ordinary, well-adjusted nature kind of um, eclipses Linda, and he feels protective of Linda. You're twice as attractive as Julia ever thought of being. You've got twice the looks, twice the mind, and ten times the quality. You could charm a bird off a tree if you would. Why not? If you were in her way, she'd ride you down like a rabbit. He knows that Linda really is a better person who is made to stand in Julia's shadow, but that's not the predominant angle here. In the play, characters are much more vicious when it comes to Julia. The Nick Potter character, the Edward Everett Horton role, is a little bit more aggressive about Julia. There is that sense that Julia is kind of like this empty-headed loser, But the movie doesn't really take that tack. Obviously, you're supposed to be rooting for Kate, and you're supposed to be rooting for Carrie, and you're supposed to be rooting for the two of them to get together. But Julia, Doris Nolan, isn't... She's more of, like, a narrative obstacle than, like, a true antagonist. And I think that nuance is good. I just... That's part of the reason why I think the movie is so well-crafted. The only real, I think, antagonist in the movie is wealth itself, you yeah. know, it's it's the, the grist of the mill of, you know, when Julia's father basically is trying to force out of Carrie some sort of evidence of, you know, connections when, when oh, my family's from Baltimore, Johnny says. And then uh, Seton's like, whoa, well, I knew all these people in, in, in Baltimore with, you know, a, a judge case, blah, 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 blah. Oh, no, I was born in Baltimore. 1908, July the 6th. I'm 30. Baltimore. I used to have a lot of good friends in Baltimore. Uh, let me see the whites, the... Uh... The Clarence Whites, uh, possibly you knew them. I don't believe I ever did. No, then there was Archie Fuller's family. I'm afraid not. Let me see, Colonel Evans, old Philip Evans. No. No, I haven't been there some years, and, well, I wouldn't know them anyway. You see, my father had a small grocery store in Baltimore. Oh, did Yes, he was never able to make a go of it, though, and when he died, he left a number of debts which Mother worked very hard to clear up. I was only a child at the time, and naturally I couldn't help her very much. Mother died the May before my 16th birthday. Oh, yeah, yeah. sad. Yes, it was pretty sad. I hadn't had any connections except for an uncle who's in the uh, roofing business in Wilmington. He wasn't much good, though. He was inclined to get drunk. Still is. We had an uncle like that, but he keeps off roofs. Well, Mother had always wanted me to go to a big eastern college, so, so I worked my way through Harvard. I ran an eating joint in the laundry. In vacations, I worked in a steel mill and an automobile factory. One summer, I drove a garbage truck. Uh, admirable. Uh... No, no, they simply had to be the only kind of jobs I could get. But you can learn a lot in a steel mill, a lot you don't get at Harvard. Anything else, sir? Beg your pardon? I should think you would. And it's like, basically, he forces Carrie 
to uh, be like, no, no, I don't know those people. No, I don't know those people. No, I don't know those people until Carrie is really thrust forward and has to volunteer his life story, which um, is something that would resonate a lot more strongly with audiences than any of the other circumstances in the picture. So I don't know. I think I think a lot of it. I think a lot of it would be just be projection. Here's somebody who comes from nothing and he's made something and he's willing to throw it all away at a time when people are wishing they could make anything from their nothing. So I, I get it. I get it. But I think that's the problem with the popular medium, you know, and that's what cinema is. It's not a novel. You can get away with a much more textured depiction of wealth in something that draws its strengths and its its context from a novel and something that's approached in a novelistic fashion. Dodsworth, I think, is a really good example of a movie that talks about the immorality of money and how money warps people, but it does it in a way that's palatable to a Depression-era audience by making a point that these people would be bad with or without money. Whereas in Holiday, the question is, if you ask yourself, would Ned be miserable if he weren't beholden to upholding the family legacy? And the answer is no, because he wouldn't be, you know what I mean? He could just go off and play piano and get drunk or whatever, you know? He'd be like Frank Albertson and Alice Adams. Everything would be fine. He'd just be chilling, gambling in the back room at some sort of society party. And not sitting under a large, ominous portrait of his mother. And I also think the the kind of phantom presence of their mother, their deceased mother, kind of hovering over the movie, and especially in the context of the nursery, which obviously symbolizes a lot of maternal bonding, is also a really interesting choice. I think it's a really... What I will note about that, though, the timelines in this movie are fucked. (laughs) Because it's like the portrait of the mother is like full turn of the century. And then they're like... Oh, you know, mother died however many years ago. And then, like, it's just not enough time for her to have been an adult adult and had children and then died. And then the father is also very old. It's just, it's the the timelines. They are strange. Well, he looks very old, but then he says he's, like, 52. (laughs) Yeah. Well, back then. It's a hard 52. Well, yeah, life fucking sucked. You know, you didn't have fluoride in the drinking water. Yeah, but he was also rich. And, well, even rich people, again, your diet was basically just like shitloads of meat and potatoes and like nobody ever ate a vegetable. Of course you're gonna look like shit. Oh, I was gonna say another thing too is that in the play, Linda is the baby of the family and Julie is the eldest sister. And I think the change that's made in the film adaptation wherein uh, Linda is kind of an older spinster and Julia is the kind of last one along the line who's always gotten everything she wants is a much stronger dramatic choice. It makes a lot more Mm -hmm. sense in terms of their dynamic Mm -hmm. because it would make sense that she'd be, that Kate would be so protective of Doris Nolan and just worshiping the ground she walks on because she's her baby as, you know, and also the idea that it it lends a, um, an element of, of sadness to Linda's moods the way it's referenced that, you know, oh, she's hiding during another party, you know, um, the idea that she's somebody who's kind of got like rapidly dwindling social capital as an unmarried woman kind of hurtling towards middle age. And also that she sort of took on that more maternal role that when the mother died. Um, I will say another thing I like about Holiday is definitely the rapport between the Potters um, and the just the fast dialogue that, that happens between them, especially in their critique of the party when they enter. It's like, oh, you know, I've got to run in my tights. Don't tell anyone, but I've got to run in my stocking. Good heavens, we're ruined. Not a word of this to a soul. No, sir. The elevator is to the rear and to the right. Sorry. Oh, 
Perhaps we'd better use the elevator. To the rear and to the right. I think we'd better go home. Now, courage, dear. Courage, courage. Remember, we promised Johnny that we'd come. You know, this reminds me a little of the palace of the Emperor Caligula. You remember Caligula, don't you, dear? Oh, very well indeed. What ever became of him? When Nick hands off his, like, trench coat to the butler and it's, like, wet and saggy as shit and ugly and threadbare, I think I think there are definitely audience surrogates and I think they're successful audience surrogates mm-hmm. because they're the only people who are speaking sense a lot of the time in the movie. And I love movies about found family and I think the Potters and Johnny Case are a really good example of a found family. I will just say that Johnny Case is a bad name. <laughs> what should they have named him, in your humble opinion? Gig Young. I don't know. <laughs> My first thought was Laszlo. I think that would be a cool name. Oh, I like the way that uh, Ned as a character has emerged as some sort of like millennial gay icon. That's funny. Because he is. Lou Ayres is a gay icon. Because he didn't want to fight in a war. Gays don't like war. <laughs> he... he loves, um, you know, church altars. Balding. Just a general disdain for his profession. Like, people love Robert Pattinson for the same thing, except I find Robert Pattinson fucking insufferable. Um, But I I think Luez is much more justified in his, you know, derision than someone like Robert Pattinson is because he didn't, like, become reviled for refusing to go to war, you know? Yeah, I mean, also he survived a marriage to a Christian scientist, so... (laughs) Yeah, no, Lou is totally the 30s equivalent of Robert Pattinson. That's a really, I think, astute comparison. Thanks, I'm allowed one a year. (laughs) (laughs) He's just got that same, uh, that nonchalance. I think that's what I love about Lou, is that even in roles where he should care, he really doesn't have any interest in what's going on whatsoever and then he really does not care he yeah he doesn't care even in dr kildare he's like barely there he's like let this man die on this table with my hand in his colon let him die <laughs> i'm not interested the thing about lou is that i think people think that like blase detached style of acting came into fashion in the 50s because people don't know anything about movies you know they think that's like some sort of james dean brando cool bullshit thing but it's a very consistent stylistic choice amongst young actors in the 30s and 40s and um very few of them ever pulled it off successfully however and lose one of them you know robert mitchum taps into that same well of you know baby i don't care that's exactly what lou is now lou is not as physically intimidating as robert mitchum (laughs) and i don't think he could have survived escaping a chain gang or whatever the fuck but he likewise is completely unimpressed by everything around him i relate to that i think it's cool how lou doesn't care about what he does because not caring is cool you know people every couple years are like giving a shit is cool being emotionally invested in your work is cool like no it's not (laughs) you should hate your job you should hate your boss and that's praxis What's it like to get drunk, man? It's... How drunk? Good and drunk. Grand. How is it? Well, to begin with, it brings you to life. Does it? Mm, And after a while, you begin to know all about it. You feel, I don't know... That must be good. It is. Hey. And then pretty soon the game starts. What game? Mm, 
Swell game. Terribly exciting game. You see, you think clear as crystal. But every move, every sentence is a problem. That gets pretty interesting. You get beaten, though, don't you? Sure, but that's good, too. Then you don't mind anything, not anything at all. Then you sleep. How long can you keep it up? Long while, long as you last. Oh, Ned, that's awful. Think so? Other things are worse. Where do you end up? Where does everybody end up? You die. That's all right, too. Well, I mean, now, Tiff, do you have anything about this movie that you like? No, I hate this movie, actually. Yeah, no, it was, this one was a hard one to do because, like, again, the plot isn't very convoluted like it's very straightforward and the production is like the shortest part of the whole thing because it just kind of went fine um so but sometimes it's nice to do a movie where the production you know didn't involve several people being maimed and a helicopter crash i mean we did have donald ogden sewer get hit by a fucking car like right before so that was cool that's true yeah no i mean this is one of my favorite movies ever like really um for a lot of the reasons that you guys have already covered like i just think it's it's very human it's possibly the only movie about rich people that i find relatable yeah i I think it's got some of my favorite performances from some actors who i really do love kate and carrie and and lou airs so i think holiday is important because it's also good to remember that occasionally in the 1930s hollywood did still make movies for grown-ups you know a lot of the movies from the late 30s in particular that are best beloved are musicals you know they're they're big budget productions they're they're screwball comedies they're you know something like they're or they're war films you know gunga din or whatever there's something great and pivotal and important and earth-shattering exciting at the at the core of it and i think a quiet little movie about grown-up people who got beef with each other, and you're going to hear about it. I love those movies the most. I think that's probably my favorite. If there's a genre of movie, it's movie you can't take children to. (laughs) Um, And this is one of them. And they became vanishingly rare until the late 1940s because they, they, uh, they ebb and flow. And right now, I think we're also living in a time where there is a dearth of entertainment that is explicitly for adults and not in a pornographic sense but in like uh an intellectual sense yeah um yeah i'm looking straight at fucking marvel yeah and it's like it's important oh right oh you know right sometimes they did make movies that didn't have explosions in them or a giant waterfall feature made out of human limbs. Sometimes there are movies where it's like, I can't take the kid to this one because it's just rich people complaining about being rich. And as much as that disgusts me, and I would fully support every member of the family apart from Ned and Linda being guillotined, and maybe even Ned and Linda, to be quite honest with you, if if push came to shove. I mean, Linda really only has the ability to be the way that she is because she is rich, but I mean... Well, that's another thing, too, that I think people find frustrating about uh, a narrative like this. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, okay, all right, she can abandon everything and go chase after and support the man she loves. Well, guess what? I have a rock farm to tend to. I have to feed rocks to my children. Us executing Linda is the, uh, (laughs) the tweet, the Tony Hawk tweet 
where it's like, yes. I'm going to yeah. kill you, but I'm going to feel bad doing it. And Tony Hawk was like, well, I appreciate the uh, the hesitation. Hesitation. <laughs> Linda yeah. is definitely one of like the like twee, like quirky, uh, manic pixie dream girl. Like I was going to say that. Characters of her day. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say she's sort of the proto manic pixie dream girl, but like she's also Catherine Hepburn. So yeah. Kate playing it again, lends her this great gravity and seriousness and sadness and like emotional resonance that she would not have played by another actress like fucking Anne Harding because <laughs> Kate again knew that the 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 I don't want to say the word torture but that the tortured element uh, behind that's why Kate is such a great avatar of the 20th century um of of well, white privileged womanhood in the 20th century it's the concept of how you are restricted why you're restricted and why your life takes on the paths and contours that it does and Kate always brings to a role like this, this understanding of the sacrifices that a character like Linda has to make and will make in the future in order to be happy. And that's why the best Catherine Hepburn parts are written with that in mind, and the worst Catherine Hepburn parts do not have that understanding behind them. Bringing up Baby Works because she gives Susan Vance that vulnerability, you know, that she has, that desperation to be loved and to be respected and to not be not be thought of as, you know, a moron, which is what she is. But she doesn't want to be treated like a moron anymore, you know? I don't know. Kate was... We use the word genius a lot on this podcast, but Kate was a genius. Uh, we didn't even talk about Carrie at all in this episode. And Tiff loves Carrie. So I'm just gonna... I think Carrie's very good in this, but I do think it's Kate's movie. It's so... totally Kate's movie. And, and it's Kate's, yeah, every it's movie Kate's Kate's Kate is in is Kate's movie. That it's is yeah. true. And honest. That is true. People have said enough about Cary Grant. We all know what people think about Cary Grant. I just, blah, 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 all done. I think there are other performances we could talk about when you talk about Cary Grant. This is just not one of them where I think it really deserves as much discussion. Well, yeah, I think if you're going to talk about a man in this movie, it's got to be Lou. Like, Oh, yeah, big time. Big time. And if it's our podcast, we can do whatever the fuck we want. So um, <laughs> anyway, Candace. Yeah? How many shots of liquor drunk by Louise would you give this movie? Out of how many drink 62 was probably how much he imbibes. I would give out it... Out of 10. Out of 10. I would give it 9 out of 10. Todd, how many stuffed giraffes that look frighteningly like Catherine Hepburn would you give this movie out of five I would give it five giraffes I love the movie I think it's a five giraffe movie um Amelia how many apples shared by Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant seconds after meeting basically would you give this movie out of I hate that bit so much <laughs> out of ten uh, I mean I'd give it nine but I resent the vessel <laughs> it's pretty gross of those nine points yeah. they did not social distance yeah. They, yeah this is a complete lack of social distancing oh my god we didn't um, even talk about the kiss the new year's oh, kiss we talked about the window we talked about the window but the kiss that's like one of the best kisses Listen. that's it all right happy new year johnny happy new year linda You can count on Sister Linda, Johnny. Run on down now. They'll be waiting. Tiff, say something about the kiss. It's a good kiss. You brought it up. I just think I just think it's a really lovely shot. It really is. It's you it's got like the moment. curtains and the breeze, and it's very pretty. I think even the the kiss at the end um, on the boat on the floor after the tumble 
is a good one. They're a good couple. Johnny and Linda are a good couple. They're very sweet. I love seeing their athleticism play off. Yeah. The others. Mm. Yeah. They're good people. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. And, you know, whatever makes Edward Everett Horton happy makes me happy. Unless he wants to live with his mom, apparently. Which is fucking... Yeah. He just loves his mom. All he does is love his mom. <laughs> All right. Well, is that it? Is there anything else we want to say? Uh, just continue to support important causes from, you know, afar if you must in this era of social distancing. I don't know. Yeah. Um, like, while you're supporting the causes, make sure you take care of yourself yeah. um, and others' safety. Be sure to continue educating yourselves where and when you can. Definitely thank you for listening. Uh, we know that the schedule is quite sporadic at the moment, but, you know, let's just say it's a lovable quality about us. We're those rapscallions. We come into your life every so often, like an Uncle Buck. Um <laughs> It's like Screw a everything up and then leave again, you know? We're like the circus. We are like the circus. And sometimes we burn the town down in a fire <laughs> and sometimes you electrocute our elephants so yeah as always thank you for listening please tell us what you thought of this episode um on our social channels or rate and review us wherever you listen to this podcast please just tell us what you think i don't know what else to say they're not uh, doing it even after i threatened them <laughs> well, so <laughs> they're not afraid of you uh, if you can, uh, shoot a couple be. dollars over to, I don't know, an initiative like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, yep. The ACLU. The ACLU. Be nice to each other, please. Be nice to each other. Also, obey fucking lockdown restrictions. Just fucking do that, okay? Jesus. Wear a mask. Unless you're in Australia, then you don't need to wear a mask. But just, like, don't have family fucking gatherings with 25 people. Who even wants to see their family? I just don't understand. Anyway. Uh, well, I okay, I just got assassinated for saying that I wouldn't want to live with my mom for the rest of my life. So I don't know. Yeah, good question. Stay, stay away from your loved ones and contact us, your real loved ones, on social media, such as Twitter and Instagram. We're your newfound family. Just like the Potters. Just like just the like Potter. the Potter. Nick and Susan, not not Harry. Well, that's canceled. We're not allowed. Yeah. We're not friends with Harry Potter anymore. <laughs> Friendship with Harry Potter canceled. My new best friend is the Potter's Holiday, nineteen thirty eight. Um, what movie are we doing next? Do we think? Should we give a hint? What's our next movie? Do we know? It's you. Yeah, it's you. It's your turn next. Oh, it's my turn. Um, well, um. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing next. You did this to yourself. I did this to myself. Yeah, you fucking idiot. I don't know. It'll be fun. You I'll kept complaining because you're like, we never do all my favorites. We never do any of my favorites. It's like, well, it's well within your fucking power to do your favorites. <laughs> I'm not saying we never do it. it. I made us do Berlin Correspondent for no reason. Uh, I don't know. I'll pick something. I'll figure out something. I'll do something weird. I want to do something weird. Like um, Chicken Every Sunday with Dan Daly or something. Just pick something Funky. Something funky fresh. Yeah, that'll get the audience in. <laughs> People love Celeste home, so... <laughs> they don't. <laughs> yeah. Next episode, there might be puppets, there might not. I'm not really sure at this point. So, well, well. thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back. I'm not going to say when. One day. Who knows? We'll have at least a One bonus day. episode within the next three weeks. How about that? I think we can, we can don't do that. make promises. We'll be back at some time. You can count on that. And until then, stay safe. Uh, don't attend any Trump rallies. I don't think any Trump voters are listening. But if you are, um, please cease and desist. Um, 
Wash your hands. Wear a mask. Yeah, that's it. Well, I don't know. What else is there to say? Also, if you're my neighbours listening to this, it doesn't take eight weeks to build a fucking ship. <laughs> and that's it. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. that prior to really um what's the word i'm looking for oh my god my brain is fried what, what was that period in american history where you weren't allowed to drink booze probation my brain, <laughs> my brain was just like probation i i don't know whatever i'm dying maybe